I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life, to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. I'm your host, Paul Furlong. Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Anyway, without further ado, I'm delighted that our guest today is number one best-selling author, Lars Emmerich. He's the author of the Sam Jameson and Peter Kittredge Conspiracy Thriller series, read by over one million thriller fans worldwide. Lars is an entrepreneur, investor, Bitcoin miner, and retired F-16 pilot. He writes about good guys with a bad streak and bad guys with just a few redeeming qualities. A 1994 distinguished graduate of the Air Force Academy, a Hertz Fellow, and two-time recipient of the Distinguished Flying... Start that a little bit again. 1994 distinguished graduate of the Air Force Academy, a Hertz Fellow, and two-time recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal for Valor in Combat, Lars brings a unique perspective to any discussion about literature, economics, and geopolitics, some of which we're going to touch on today. So Lars, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor and privilege. I'm excited to be here with you. So I've given you a little bit of an introduction there. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I grew up in proto-suburbia in the U.S., one of the early uh, early suburbs, lower middle class uh, in Denver. And uh, I went to a parochial school. I came from a somewhat religious family. And... Um, Went off to the Air Force Academy, actually just down the street from where we lived, down the street about an hour and a half away, and was fortunate enough to have landed a pilot training slot and uh, was 
spent the next year and a half after graduating from the Air Force Academy learning how to fly airplanes, how to fly jets. Uh, it seems extremely improbable now that anybody in their right mind would give a 22-year-old kid the keys to uh, <laughs> a supersonic aircraft, but that's what they did. <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, I didn't crash the silly thing or get kicked out. And I found myself shortly thereafter uh, on a remote tour to South Korea flying F-16s. And then lived all over the world. At some point during that, during that stint, and by the way, fl- flying jets was beautiful and amazing and, and uh, very challenging. Loved the people that I uh, got to work with. Uh, a really unique opportunity. Also a lot of work. And if you stay too long, they take away your airplane and they give you an email password and they expect you to show up to a bunch of meetings. And so that started happening to me. And uh, the older you get, the more those meetings happen to be in different parts of the, of the world and the country. So I spent a lot of time in airports and hotels and I wanted to do something productive with that time. So uh, I began writing novels. I had, always, I had always wanted to be Tom Clancy when I grew up. Of course, I discovered quickly that nobody's Tom Clancy but Tom Clancy, but I would do the best that I could and see where I got with things. And uh, equally improbably, people liked the books. So I kept writing more of them. And that became a full-time gig after I, I hung up my G suit and my Air Force email password. So the rest, as they say, is, is history. Amazing. Well, before we get into the, into the novels and, and the, the writing, how much is real life as an F-16 pilot similar to Top Gun and Maverick? You know, it's, um, uh, it's really interesting, that question. I, my, my daughter and I were seeing a movie. We arrived early. We weren't seeing Top Gun. I snuck in the side at Top Gun just to sort of see what was happening. And, uh, of course, I had seen the, the, the prior version. I had maybe watched it a hundred times when I, was, when I was younger. And I was really enamored with the flying scenes. I was struck, after having had a career in that business, at how beautiful and, and uh, how well done the flying scenes were in Top Gun. That they did extremely well. As far as the Hollywood-esque, you know, semi-rock star lifestyle, uh, you know, not so much. It's a boatload of work. (laughs) I mean, they didn't really, I don't think they depict the 60-hour weeks plus and, uh, you know, sleeping in tents kind of a thing. But but as far as the flying scenes were concerned, they they were quite realistic. I don't mean to say that Tom Cruise's tactics were (laughs) what we did. But the way they filmed the scenes, it gives you a really good sense for the way those airplanes move. And, um, and uh, I, you know, it gave me a bit of nostalgia. I actually got a little misty, you know, because I had the only place you see those views is in the cockpit. And so it took me back to a prior life when, when that was my reality. You know? And uh, man, I miss it sometimes. I really do. That's amazing because a number of times you see a film and, and then you hear someone talk about it like it's, it's not like that at all. Or it's, uh, they've got that wrong, got that wrong, and what have you. Um, it's, it's good to hear that that's so realistic. Because I know uh, when, when you see Tom Cruise in interviews, he's always talking about how he wants to get it as close to the real life as possible, um, whilst making it as entertaining as possible. I, I know I, when I saw Maverick, I was absolutely blown away by it. I thought it was uh, an incredible piece of, of cinema. It was, uh, it was amazing. 
Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I think I'm, I've been putting it off because I know it'll be emotionally laden for me <laughs> over the hill as I am at these days. But uh, my, my wife and I are, are uh, making plans to go sit down and watch it. So I'll, I'll have more to report about how realistic the rest of it is. But at least at that brief glimpse, it was, uh, uh, it was a very nice uh, trip down memory lane for me. Good to know. So let, let's get into your work then. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Sam Jameson and, and Peter Kittredge, the, uh, the stars of your, of your conspiracy series that you've written. Sam's got 10 books, is that right? Yes, uh, something along that. Sam has 10, Peter Kittredge has one, Quinn has one. I am currently working on number 13 total which will be the 11th in the uh, Sam Jameson uh, series. All of these, by the way, all of them are available, what I'm calling the best deal in thriller fiction, uh, ebooks and audiobooks at lars.buzz. So that's the, if any of this sounds interesting up your alley, uh, there's an easy and inexpensive way to, uh, uh, to try the series out. Um, I, I had uh, become a bit disillusioned with... Uh, with our government here in the U.S. And I don't mean in a political uh, spectrum. I'm not talking about uh, reds versus blues or left versus right or center versus extremes. I just mean functionally. It didn't seem that the values that we told the world we were pursuing, we were actually pursuing. And uh, we sort of had taken the view that we are truth and justice and goodness personified and everyone else can just get in line or get out of our way. And, um, you know, when you grow up in a culture like that, it, it becomes the story, the lens through which you view things. And it's only through experience that, um, that gets tested and maybe readjusted. And it was readjusting for me as I was seeing sort of the inner workings of the interface between uh, military acquisitions and government functions. And that's a great place to see the budget process at work. It's a great place to see massive bureaucracies on the government side, which of course spawn massive bureaucracies on the private sector side that serve the government because the government hands you just stacks and stacks of binders of requirements that you have to comply with if you're going to, going to serve the government. So of course, that adds expense and, um, and it adds time and it adds overburden. And someplace along the way, the principles and the values appeared to have, uh, they're, they're muddled. They were muddied, at least from where I sat at the time. And it occurred to me, hey, the good guys aren't that good, necessarily. And at the same time, I had, I had also been exposed to... to um, um, I would say less filtered information about other folks on other parts of the world who lived in different ways than we did. And lo and behold, once I learned a bit more about them, it sure seemed a lot less like good versus evil in the world. And it sure seemed a lot more like a matter of perspective. And uh, a lot more as if where you stand on an issue depends to a great extent on where you sit on the globe and what zip code or what country or what postal code 
or what city or what neighborhood you happen to be born into. And it really challenged the narratives that the story that I had been living into. And um, this idea fascinated me that what if it isn't good versus evil? What if it is ambiguous and perspective dependent? What values remain there in the middle that, um, that we can all pursue? And what values are different sides potentially pursuing that brings us into conflict? And uh, so I wanted, you know, in, in the genre of like spy fiction and, and thriller fiction, it's a clear, bright line in many cases, good versus evil. And the good guys do some rough things, but that's all in the service of good. They do them only because they have to do them. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that we have to do those things. And so I wanted to explore um, the inner conflict of being in a situation like that or in a profession like that, that calls on you uh, to do things that are, they would get you put in prison for life if you had done them in a different context. And in some states here in the U.S., it would, it would you know, we would execute you if you were convicted of those things. So in, in what context is that okay? And uh, does it have psychological impact? Does it change and damage you in a particular way? And to what end are we, to what end are we doing these things? Are we really vanquishing evil out there in the world? Or have we just arrived at a place where two different points of view have clashed? Or two different sets of interests and imperatives have clashed? And so I wanted to explore that in, in story form. And uh, who knows how close I came, <laughs> but that was my initial idea with, uh, with the process. That's a really interesting way to, to go into, isn't it? I imagine Sam Jameson particularly going through 10, now 11 uh, novels. That's really going to take its toll on her, isn't it? It's going to be uh, a big process over that time. Um, yeah. with, with that, with, with that kind of, uh, size of story that we're following her through, um, rather than just kind of one, one or two, uh, stories for her. How are you seeing across that scope that that's affecting her without giving anything away? It definitely has taken, taken a toll and she got into it as many people do. Uh, because of things she had suffered in her earlier life. And so this, this sets a wrongness. This like puts the world out of tilt for her. And so she tacitly crusades to right the world. She's not entirely aware that that's what she's doing. And um, of course, neither was I. When I started writing her, it was only in retrospect that I realized, hey, Maybe there's something broken at the middle of her. I sort of hinted at it earlier. Um, but you get a few novels into the series, maybe seven, before you really get a glimpse into what is this driving, what is this driving wrong that has pushed her? And, um, and also, what are the, what's the psychological toll that her current profession and her her current pursuits have taken on her that cause her to re-examine her initial assumptions. 
And um, hopefully, in that process, we all can have a vehicle to sort of re-examine our assumptions as well. Because I think in many cases, if not most, they're oversimplified and uh, they lack nuance and they just generally lack an accuracy about the situation because of the pervasive story that we socially carry around of good versus evil. I think that's one of my uh, issues with James Bond particularly. Certainly pre-Daniel Craig, Bond goes through all of this turmoil. He sticks all these women, he kills all these people, he goes through all these explosions, and he pretty much comes out at the end of it exactly as he went into it right at the beginning. Um, It doesn't really hold a mirror up to anything. It doesn't really uh, show us who we are. He doesn't really seem to be affected by it. Um, And everything that he does, he kind of does, as you said, right right at the start of talking about Sam. He does because that's the right thing to do for good. Daniel Craig's kind of muddy daughter a bit, hasn't he, as Bond. But I think what you're talking about here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Sam, she's... She's more complex than that, and the situations that you're putting her in as the character are more complex than that, and it's holding a mirror up to a lot of the things that are going on in the world and asking a few more questions. In aggregate, yes. I shouldn't oversell that aspect of it. It is a thriller. There are certainly there, there are certainly situations that she moves through that are they're very tactical situations, and um, it, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's... It's not classic literature, I wouldn't say. It's, inter- it's thriller entertainment, hopefully with uh, something else and additional to think about. And I, I, hear, I hear your comment about Bond, absolutely. I really have enjoyed watching Daniel Craig in the character. I think he's my favorite, you know, by a, long, by a long stretch. I was also thinking of another extremely successful uh, character, which is Jack Reacher. From, from Lee Child. And he, I think he's similar in the Bond vein where he, he remains a bit immovable. You know, he remains a bit inexorable. You see glimpses, I think, here and there of, of deeper processes, but mainly you, I, I think it's his quirkiness in different situations that you want to see because you know that he's not really changing much and he approaches things in a particular way. So I, I, I do see that appeal. And it's, of course, take nothing away from Lee Child. It's very well done. Um, but I do, I do occasionally uh, want some growth <laughs> in the yeah. characters as well, beyond just slowing down a step or having a few more aches and pains. Absolutely. And so one of the, the, the topics that you're particularly interested in uh, and that you write about is how uh, political unrest causes economic subjugation. Um, so, can you unpack that a little bit and tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think in the West we've we've um, and you might be able to trace this back to the beginning of the nuclear age, where it has become extremely expensive, potentially for nuclear nation states to face off directly. And so we've found other ways to shore up our our defenses. Proxy wars, of course, 
another front of proxy war, proxy warfare, in my estimation, is financial. And the, the, the two main arms that sort of do this are the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And the idea there is that uh, you can you can de facto extract the resources of a of a country by writing loans to them for infrastructure which may or may not be of significant utility to them based on where their society currently exists, but for which they have to pay. Uh, fairly steep loan service payments. And many, many countries don't have the ability to pay these loans back. So they're, they, in essence, labor as wage slaves. And it's not like this is unknown to the people in those countries, they, particularly the political leaders. Um, and when the political leaders say, hey, We'd prefer not to take your loan. We'd prefer not to pay it back. We, we, we don't want anything to do with this scenario. It hasn't worked out so well for the neighbors all around us. Why would we climb in bed with the same beast? And uh, we in the West, in the U.S., got pretty good at regime change in those scenarios. We figured out how to overthrow political leaders in their own countries and install people who were ready and willing to play ball with our uh, our financial aspirations. And I don't think, by and large, we've brought those societies forward. I think we've more. It's more likely that we've we've kept them subjugated. So uh, I think this has had a, a tremendous impact on the way the world has unfolded, particularly the third world. And then when you mix in the extent to which we're involved in Middle Eastern politics, not because we care particularly about living conditions over there. I mean, if we were, if we were looking to alleviate human suffering any place, we'd have to start in Africa, I think, without any, with any, without any doubt. We're not really concerned with that. I think we're concerned with uh, access to oil and uh, at reasonably favorable terms. And there, there are good reasons for that, of course. But the way that we have gone about those kinds of endeavors, I don't think has created stability. I think it's, it's created a lot of instability. And um, we've, we've uh, put a lot of pretty bad people in power <laughs> all over the place. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's the thing you can do when the world settles all of its transactions in your currency, in the U.S. dollar by the SWIFT system. I think this is a luxury and a power that you don't have when the world stops settling in your currency. And um, I think it won't be terribly long before we in the U.S., Deal what that feels like. I think we've, I think we have uh, printed so much of of the of the currency that folks all over the world are starting to wonder how valuable can it really be if we're printing a hundred billion dollars worth every single month, right? If all we're doing is changing numbers on a spreadsheet, at some point people were going to ask the question, 
I surmise. I could be wrong, but my hunch is that at some moment, there's likely to be a crisis of confidence in the dollar and uh, we'll be looking for a replacement globally. And I think this will drastically change the picture, the balance of power for sure. Do you think that that, that will shift to, towards a, a different uh, country having the power? Do you think it will shift to a Bitcoin-type currency? What, where do you see that going? I can see it going a few different directions. The direction I hope it goes is Bitcoin. And um, my reasoning for this, I, I've been involved... I first heard about it when I was uh, researching these kinds of topics, must have been eight or nine years ago. And when I began to understand how the protocol worked, it struck me that this is potentially the most powerful vehicle for human freedom that we've invented in a really long time and maybe ever. And what makes it so powerful is the fact that there are between 15 and 100,000 nodes that are spread out globally. And each one of these nodes secures the network. And if any network change, for example, if we wanted to print more Bitcoin than the schedule, if we wanted to print $100 billion a month, (laughs) for example, to do that, 51% of those 100,000 people all over the earth would have to agree that it's a good idea for us to debase this currency globally. Now, those odds seem significantly lower than a room full of old white men deciding that it's a good idea to inflate the currency. And in a world where you can't trust the money, like in the US, and I feel it's likely the same in the UK, if, if you have a windfall, you come into some money, the last thing you do is keep it as money. You have to go put it someplace. You have to go buy something with the money because the money disappears. Meaning you lose your purchasing power over time. And here in the US, that's currently happening. We're losing about half our purchase power, purchasing power about every four to five years. So this drives all sorts of crazy behavior when you can't trust the money. Number one. And number two, it allows a government to implement any policy it cares to just by spending it into existence, even and especially warfare. I mean, no government saves up a half a trillion dollars and then invades the neighbor, right? The government invades the neighbor due to some something, usually trumped up. Um, and then pays for the war by debasing the currency. Oldest trick in the book. But if we're on a currency where the entire earth has to agree that we're all going to debase this currency now, those odds seem significantly lower of any one country invading another or of any one country subjugating another economically. So that's my hope is that we we adopt the Bitcoin standard for that reason, because it takes the power away from the local interest and puts it in the interest of the individual. And um, sure, there are lots of technical hurdles between now and then, all the things 
all the criticisms, many of them are, are, are true and accurate. But at its core, it's potentially the best vehicle for human liberty that we've invented. Certainly in the last, you know, in the last 50 years or so. I also think when you can inflate the currency, it allows you to take a very, very short term as a policymaker, as a, as a leader of a country, it allows you to take a very short term view. You don't have to consider long term consequences because they'll happen. They'll come home after, after the next election, most likely. So you can implement bad policy quickly by merely printing your way to it. Whereas if you were forced to exercise some degree of fiscal responsibility by only spending money that you had on programs, projects, pet rocks, it drastically limits the scope of what you're able to do. And it also limits your ability to purchase votes, which I, I think is the way the incentive structure has been aligned. And it it's not a surprise, I don't think, to anyone who looks at the way incentives are aligned, and particularly in, in uh, Western politics, where uh, where it's campaign contributions that drive policy. And of course, the, the folks most able to contribute to political campaigns are the ones with significant amounts of money, often, you know, with corporate interests. And it, there's nothing evil or... No, I shouldn't say there's, not, there's nothing inherently evil about large successful corporations. It's that their scope, the, their, their scope of concern is mainly related to stock share, mainly related to shareholder value. And it's not related directly to broader social or societal conditions. In other words, if society is going to hell in a handbasket, but your share prices are up and your revenues are up, and, and particularly when you've gotten some friendly legislation enacted that, that uh, removes some competition and makes it harder for anybody to cross that moat to get at your market share, um, then you're fine. You don't really care all that much about broader societal conditions. Those are external to your area of concern. So um, we typically behave as though infrastructure were just a given and uh, the rule of law is just a given and enforceable contracts are just a given because by and large in Western societies they are, but not, not so all over, all over the place. Um, so I, I think uh, the ability to create money and use it to implement policy as influenced by the people who have given the most to your campaign, it, it certainly limits your ability to think in terms of what is best for your jurisdiction as a whole. And it really focuses your incentive structure on keeping your job by winning the next election. And so I think this is a fundamental change that the inability to inflate the currency will, will certainly have, I think. Not that the system will change, but the extent to which it's able to, to um, by the extent to which it's, it's able to push around policy, I think that will diminish.
fingers crossed for that. And I, I, I know there's a very small amount about Bitcoin and, and, and that kind of world, and I'm learning a little bit more about that. That certainly sounds um, far more preferable than, as you put it, a few white guys in a room making all the decisions. Yeah, old white guys, no less. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So how can storytelling help to mend the broken discourse. All of this put together all sounds mm. and is terrible and, and all this uh, economic subjugation and all this inflation of, of, um, of money and everything else. As a storyteller, what are you going to do about it? I think stories are the most powerful organizing force on the planet. I think we organize human energy and effort and intelligence and genius and industry around our stories. And I think, um, and I actually have a great deal of hope because I hear the way my high school daughter and her friends talk to each other. And it's much, much more respectful, much, much more charitable, uh, much less I'm right and you're wrong, much less here's the way you should be living your life and much more humble and also much more educated about other valid ways of living. I think a precursor to that is an even more powerful set of stories which is the set of stories that you, that we all, tell ourselves about ourselves. And we, uh, we inherit these socially, and we inherit these genetically. And in many cases, they're very, very toxic. Like We are very, very tough on ourselves. And I know this because I have... I have developed some some ability to listen to the stories that I am telling myself. And uh, I became aware that, my gosh, I am not, I'm not treating myself with respect. Um, I'm actually a pretty good person. I work very hard. I, um, I try to learn. I try to have an open mind. Why am I so hard on myself? And um, this judgment, the self-judgment, comes from a lot of places in Western culture, religion not the least of which, for sure. You know, 
the religious traditions, many of them in the U.S. are very judgmental, very judgmental. They give every thought gets a good or bad label associated with it in the context of the religious construct that, that we're raised in. That's one, one area. We're also very, very success and wealth-minded. So if someone else in your, in your circle is achieving more, then it must be a reflection on your inherent worth as an individual. And this drives a very, very harsh um, self-narrative. And of course, if you can't be charitable to yourself, I mean, you follow yourself around every day. You know what you're trying to do in your life. Very, very few of us are trying to go out there and harm people. Very few of us are trying to achieve negative outcomes or trying to um, hurt people. Of course it happens. But very, very few of us are trying to do this in our life. Most of us are, are pursuing very admirable values. And yet, we just eviscerate ourselves with our internal talk. So it's not really possible if you can't give yourself the benefit of the doubt, if you can't give yourself encouragement, if you can't give yourself some admiration for all of the effort that you've put in and for all the learning that you've accomplished, and if you can't give yourself credit for having a humble and an approachable and an honest approach to things, well, how in the world are you going to extend that basic courtesy to anybody else? And what I think we do is we project this inner story of inadequacy and judgment onto everybody around us. And so we go around with our finger pointed at everyone because it's pointed most of all internally at ourselves. So changing this story about our lack of worth, about our lack of capability, of, about our moral failings, changing that story, I think, is the most important step in fixing whatever else we think might need fixing out in the world. Like all external change, and I think this is key to storytelling too, all external change, in my view, begins first as an internal shift. There's a spark internally that occurs that allows you to, to change the external circumstances. And in many cases, the internal shift is enough to recognize that there's not actually all that much externally that needs changing. It's amazing when you don't project every bad feeling you have out onto the world. So you don't spend your life trying to change the world to make your bad feeling go away. If you just allow it to arise and pass, and in the next moment, it's not a bad feeling. The world is the same. Your bad feeling is gone. <laughs> so you don't need to go out there crusading and finger pointing and um, getting ever, ever richer and gathering ever, ever more and uh, you know, winning and winning and winning all the time over everybody. This, I think, is a natural consequence of changing the story inside our own heads. That's hard work. But I think it's work that's happening. It's I hear it in our language of our of the young folks. Listen to me, I'm I'm only 50. I'm not that old, but I'm not a I'm not a high school kid. And I listen to the way my daughter and her friends speak to each other. I listen to the way my eight-year-old speaks to his friends and they speak back to them. My gosh, it's there's very little fighting. 
there's, there's very little, at least that I have seen for sure. There's, there's very little antagonism for kids. Pete's say kids are like, you know, savages generally. But I think the overall environment is becoming more conducive to introspection and a more measured and considered approach to the other person and a uh, much a, a greater sense of dealing on equal footing with other humans. Race, creed, color, sex, sexual orientation, uh, just a more general giving the benefit of the doubt. Uh, because we know how hard it is to live our lives, right? And I imagine it's probably similarly difficult for anyone else <laughs> to live their life. So I, I think this is the, the most important way that story can change things for the better. And I'm, I feel really optimistic because I feel that it is happening. Yeah, completely agree. Um, I see it in the way that my, my kids talk to each other. Um, it's very different than how I was as a, as a kid. I was a, a little rascal and uh, <laughs> it was very fun. I don't know if it was fun for everyone that used to hang mm. around with us. Um, so wh- where do you think we need to start in that kind of self-story? What is it that's going to spark that little change when we're telling ourselves our own story? How do, we, how do we tweak that? How do we change that? It's a, it's a long process. I think there are resources available that are uh, absolutely incredible at helping you discover that you can listen to your thoughts without agreeing with every single one of them that zips in front of your consciousness. Without, I mean, they're all trains at a train station. You don't get on the first train that pulls in. You get on the train that takes you where you want to go. So having the ability to see the character of your thoughts at any moment and to step back from them without living into them just step back and observe and then choose the values that you want to pursue in a certain situation. Now, all of that's easy to say and hard to do. Um, one of the most important apps, in my experience, for developing this kind of thing is called the Waking Up app by Sam Harris. I'm not affiliated, affiliated in any way other than that I'm a very enthusiastic user of the app. And it takes a... Um, it takes a very practical and non-ideological approach to developing the capability of, of experiencing your own thoughts instead of just living into them, hopping on the train and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm 50 miles away from where I wanted to go because I got on the wrong train, right? Here I am yelling at my wife again or yelling at my kids again. How did I get on this train? This is not the life I want to create, right? So that I think is the is the first thing. The second thing is, you know what? I firmly believe that every human ought to have a great therapist that they go talk to. Someone who is not, does not have a vested interest in your particular situation, but who can gently challenge your hidden assumptions and get you to glimpse the attitudes that underlie your, the attitudes that you present. And this is enormously useful. It's, 
certainly not a tradition in the West. In fact, um, as few as 10 years ago, you know, you would, it would be a, it would be a put down. You need to, you need to see a psychologist. Now I say everybody needs to go see a psychologist, preferably a good one. And it can be hard to find a good fit. But I think this is uh, an extremely important way. Those two things, learn to see your thoughts as they come and go. Learn to choose which values you want to live into in any situation. And then find a trusted, uninvolved third party to help you sift through the confusion that is human, you know, human life. I think those are really important steps. That's really great advice. Um, I've not heard of that app, uh, Waking Up. I should be sure to find it and download it uh, once we conclude uh, our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, now, I am aware of, I'm aware of time, Lars. So um, I'd love to ask you just a few quick fire questions that, that I ask all of our guests. Sure, uh, sounds fun. Okay, cool. So, uh, when you think of the word, uh, when you think of the word story, who do you think of, and why do you think of that person? I actually think of uh, the stories in my own head. Uh, I've witnessed how powerful, how positive, and how destructive they can be. So, I think of the train of stories floating in front of my consciousness, and I think of having to choose which ones I live into. So, Lars, can you recommend any good books or websites or blogs, podcasts, apps, other than Waking Up by Sam Harris that you've already mentioned uh, about storytelling to help us be better storytellers? Sure. The, uh, if your interest is in learning how to tell great stories, I've really enjoyed and learned a lot from Sean Coyne's Story Grid. And he, together with Tim Grawl, have a, uh, have a podcast and a, and a website that that really dives deep into uh, the way stories work and the way they function. And that's been really useful to me. Great. I'll look, I'll look that up as well. And finally, I know you mentioned earlier on the website to kind of get the best deals around your books, your audio books, but where else can we find you? Where else can we find you online? Uh, people potentially connect with you. Um, essentially, where are you? And where can people buy your stuff? All the places, generally, the best and, uh, and least expensive way to enjoy the series, both on audio and ebooks, is at lars.buzz. I'm also on uh, The Big River, Amazon, and uh, mainly I have m- made my living selling books to readers directly rather than through third-party retailers. And that's at the lars.buzz website. Brilliant. Well, Lars, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I've learned loads. I'm sure everyone listening has learned loads as well. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your time and uh, your wisdom today. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. I'll be sure to make sure I'm boarding the right train uh, next time I'm, uh, I'm at that station and then what earth am I doing, where am I going? And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to make sure I'm doing that. So thanks again. Thank you very much. Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.